Gotta love technology, right? There we go. All right. Here we are. So, no specific announcements of this morning, um, but we are glad you're here and we're going to dive right in this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do just thank you so much um, for our time together here that we can gather here and worship you. We can worship you through singing. We can worship you through speaking and hearing and responding to your word to us. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, help us to understand uh, what you have to say to us, and even more, by your Spirit, we ask that you would help us to walk in the way that you would have us walk and take our identity from you and serve you, the one King, the one God of all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, if you've been following along with us, we've been walking through the Bible in a year. And like we've been saying, if you haven't been following along with us, that's okay. You can always jump in now. Um, Sometimes when you start to go through the books, you can kind of get behind and feel like, oh no, I'm I'm finished. I'm not going to be able to do this. Hey, just pick right back up wherever we're at that day and start again. So just be encouraged and we hope you do follow along with us as we continue to walk through God's Word. We today, I believe, jumped right into the book of First Kings. So what I'm going to do this morning is probably read a lot of Scripture. We're going to bounce around the book of First Kings and Second Kings. And I'm going to tackle both. And I think if there is a title for the sermon, it's Lessons from the Book of Kings. And I think we treat it as one book. In fact, it was a single book. Um, The Jewish people identified it just as kings. I think that was the same with Samuel and with others, where they would just merge it and it would just be one. And as you read both 1st and 2nd Kings, you will see that they are definitely connected. It is both a historical book and it's a prophetic book. In fact, it could go in both camps. Usually, you know, when you're reading about it like in a commentary or online, it'll be treated as a historical book, but there is actually a lot to it that would make it included in the prophets because Isaiah himself comes up in these books and we'll see as we go that the prophets and the prophetic word is central to the entire way that the book is structured. So it covers about 400 years of history approximately 970 B.C. to 587 B.C. Again, that's working forward um, toward the person of Christ when the calendar switches. So roughly 970 to 587, you have about 400 years of Israel's history right here. It moves from the elderly King David, the old man, advanced in years as the book starts, all the way through several kings to Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the temple and the exile of God's people to judgment. As you read through it, you find that you have Saul, you have David in the books before under the one kingdom of Israel, but you end up having the kingdom of divided. And you have a northern kingdom that's called Israel in the book with a capital of Samaria. And you have a southern kingdom that is Judah and the capital Jerusalem. So a lot of times you'll see something like the king of Israel. Usually that's referring to the kingdom in the north. Or you'll see something like the king of Judah. That's referring to the kingdom in the south, and that's the kingdom of one tribe and where the house of David, the throne of David, would be referenced. And then as it moves, it goes from one kingdom to two kingdoms. There's even like civil wars and various splits. And it ends in the Assyrians taking over the northern kingdom of Israel and the Babylonians coming into Judah. And what we find is that The issue is idolatry. 
the issue is idolatry. They do not serve the Lord, their God, with a whole heart. And I think we're going to see that as we go. One thing I want to say that's interesting about the book is I'm a big fantasy guy. And it's interesting, when you read Kings, there's just so much that you would find in either a fantasy story or a fantasy novel or something like that. I mean, you got pretty much everything there. You got a ton of violence, lots of it. You have sacrifice, you have witchcraft, you got wars all through the books. You have wicked kings, you even have a wicked queen um, or good old Jezebel with Ahab. You have wild-haired men that are... Prophets, you have women that are prophets announcing God's word to kings. So you have this where the word of God comes to those in power to confront them, to rebuke them, to make promises of what is going to happen. So you're pretty much just missing dragons. Other than that, you pretty much got everything right there. Um, I would also say that Hermeneutically, what that basically means is as you look at the Bible, as you look at this book to interpret it, don't think so much about present day issues and nations. So you're not thinking about America. Don't try to relate it to political issues in America. What we need to be thinking now because of what Jesus Christ has done and the fact that he is king, you need to be thinking about you. You need to think about what God has said to you, the individual, and then corporately, when you think about everyone else, don't so much think about our nation state, think church, think God's people, God's people, the church, which have been formed by him. Because God doesn't have a nation, he has nations, that God has made himself a new people gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that is who he is speaking to. So as you interpret this, your head needs to go there and not get so caught up necessarily in everything that's going on now. Obviously, there's application to now. But when you look at the kings and such, you need to be seen that the issue is is that we have this longing. We have this longing in our hearts for a leader, for somebody who will come that will rule righteously and that will have an eternal kingdom of rest and peace. And we find that that does not happen with human leaders. That as we've been going through the books of the Bible, we've seen that humans fail. And humans fail over and over and over and over again. Um, God is king. God's garden. Adam fails. He sins against God. We see it through the lives of the patriarchs. So many blessings, so many promises coming um, from God and His Word. But we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see a lot of failure. Moses and Aaron Aaron and the calves, the golden calves, his failure there, Moses striking the rock, messing up there, the people of Israel when we talked about Joshua, the calling to go and take the land to rid all of the nations because of their idolatry, to get them out of the land because of God's judgment and because of the sin of the Amorites and to rid the land of them. And they don't. They leave some. So, God's people fail. The judges that come, the judges fail. They don't bring everything that they should. At times, they bring things that are wonderful, a time of blessing, a time of repentance, but eventually, others come, get installed, and they blow it. And what we see in kings is that over and over again, even among righteous kings, we have sin and failure. We have utter horrendous wickedness and idolatry characterizing an entire life of a king, and then we find mixed kings, righteous, but sometimes really messing up. And so we've seen that as we've gone. And I think one lesson we can just draw from that, like I said, is humans fail. Leaders fail. And we need one who does not. And by God's grace, we have one in the person of Christ. Um, but before we really kind of go in here, um, another lesson I think that, that we have, which we're going to see here as we walk through Solomon, is that true wholeness comes from a heart that is devoted to God. There's a lot of talk nowadays um, with the issue of wholeness, with the issue of having an integrated life. 
And that only comes through finding our identity in God and in what God has said and in what God has called us to be. We find this issue of the heart repeated over and over again, especially in one particular passage here with Solomon. But we have seen that even with King David, that he is a man after God's own heart, even though he fails. And he has a son who starts well, but finishes badly because his heart is divided. His heart is not wholly devoted to God. So I think we can draw from that that what God desires from us is he desires wholeheartedness. And again, the heart is this idea of the controlling center of our lives. So sometimes in our modern Western context, we try to divide the mind from the heart. But the heart is the center. It's your thoughts. It's your affections. It's your emotions, your desires, your will. Everything about you makes up your heart. And if you remember in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, God calls his people and he calls them to respond with their entire hearts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And he goes on. So hear, O Israel, listen. The Lord our God is one. There is only one God and you shall love him with everything within you. So that's what God is after. Later in Deuteronomy, we see that God, of course, calls his kings to live in this way, to rule in this way with a whole heart attentive and focused on God and what he has said and done. And what we see is that Solomon starts out well. In 1 Kings 3, verse 3, it says that Solomon loved the Lord. So he's fulfilling, in a sense, what Deuteronomy has called for. He loves the Lord. He asks God for wisdom. He gets wisdom. He establishes the temple, the place where God will dwell, the central place of worship. But what we find is that God warned Israel that their king should operate in a certain way. And we start to see a shift in Solomon's heart. In Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. And one thing I really want to show you guys is as you, I, I've just been amazed as I continue to go through and walk through the Bible of how connected everything is. This is a unified story. Each piece is connected and how often it comes up. Um, and, it, and, and we really see this in, in, in what happens with Solomon. In Deuteronomy 7, God in his law says, this is how your king should be. This is what they should do. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, and you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Listen to this in verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So there's one thing. God has said, do not go back to Egypt. I mean, it strikes us as kind of funny. Like, what's the deal with the horses? But God is just saying, hey, your heart is not to go back to where you've come from, to go back to your slavery. He must not acquire many horses. Verse 17, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And then it goes on about the importance of just keeping this whole law and that the law of God should be with him and that his heart would not be lifted up. And what we find is that Solomon does the exact opposite thing. So, Again, we had it start in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon loves the Lord his God. He's dedicating the temple. I mean, he's praying amazing prayers to God the King. He is even praying. I was, I was struck by 
one of these lines here because he basically prayed for the people a prayer that he would not even answer in his own life. In his benediction of the temple, he's praying these big long prayers throughout here. And in, and in uh, 1 Kings 8.61, he says, Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments as at this day. Here he's standing up in front of everybody. Let your heart be true. God help us to stay with you. And hypocrisy occurs. It begins to shift. His heart does not remain holy, true. He begins by returning to Egypt. And this often is, is missed. It actually is mentioned right before we really get um, how his heart turns from the Lord. In 1 Kings 10, we find that, you know, this is kind of when it's listing all the stuff that he has, his great wealth, and how he's gathering chariots and horsemen. And in verse, excuse me, in, in uh, 1 Kings 10:28, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And again, you're thinking, why all this stuff about the horses? What's the big deal? Again, he is returning. His heart is beginning to return to a foreign land. He is disobeying exactly what the law that he has is telling him not to do. And then right after that, it goes into how Solomon loved many foreign women. And we see that in 1 Kings 11. Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. And this issue of heart and clinging, turning away, all comes up in this little section here of 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. It says that Solomon clung to those he loved. His heart began to become enraptured with something else. Disobeying God's law and having deep love for all these foreign women. These women, not so much that they're foreigners. Again, that isn't so much the issue. We think in terms of that a lot in our culture about um, ethnicity. But it isn't just an, an, an ethnic thing. This is a, an idolatry thing. This is who they were worshipping. That they were worshipping false gods. That... They will turn his heart, and that's exactly what happened. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Again, this emphasis upon his heart and how that's connected to all that has gone before and God's warnings to his people and to his kings to watch your heart. And so notice that and ask yourself, how is your heart? It's a lesson we can draw from that. Where is your heart? What or who has won your heart? To use king language, who rules, who reigns in your heart? What are you... Who is your functional king? Not your theological king, not the statement of faith in your head, but day to day. I was talking with Kate yesterday about some of my own, in a sense, functional idols and the way in which I can walk and say, wait a second, this moment in my life right now, something else is ruling me. And we all need to be attentive to our hearts. What are you serving? Who are you serving? There's some questions that Dr. David Pallison, he passed away not too long ago, that he asked. And I just want to mention these real quick before we move on to the next point. There's a bunch of them. I'm only going to read a few. But I really want you just to take a minute. God, would you help us as we listen to these questions? Would it provoke in us a test, an idolatry test of where is our hearts? What is our hearts ruled by? What do you love? What do you hate? What do you want? What do you desire? What do you crave, lust for? What desires do you serve and obey? Where do you bank your hopes? What are you afraid of? What do you tend to worry about? 
whose coming into political power would make everything better? What do you see as your rights? What do you feel entitled to? In what situations do you feel pressured or tense, confident, relaxed? When you're pressured, where do you turn? What do you think about? What are your escapes? What do you escape from? What do you pray for? How do you implicitly say, if only? If only I got that. If only I avoided that. If only that didn't happen. If only I could keep this. How does that sentence end? Where do you find your identity? How do you define who you are? These are all questions of the heart. These are all idolatry tests. So what are you clinging to? Is it the Lord your God? The Lord your God who in a sense has brought you out of Egypt? Who has accomplished your salvation? Or is it something else? Solomon is a warning of that we can start well. We can say all the right prayers. We can build the house of God, so to speak. We can pray against hypocrisy. And our lives can end up in a completely different place because our hearts are won by something else. So God desires wholeheartedness. Another thing we find come up a lot in 1 Kings that you'll find repeated throughout 1 and 2 Kings is the sin of Jeroboam. The sin of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was one of the kings in the divided kingdom right after Solomon. And the sin of Jeroboam is very similar to the sin of Adonijah, which picks up right at the very beginning of 1 Kings. And I was struck by this language. Only a few verses in, and you find out that one of David's sons, not Solomon, one of David's sons named Adonijah, in verse 5, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. I was just really struck by that. Where do all of our problems come from? He exalts himself. This isn't God's will. He exalts himself and says, I will be king. That is pretty much what idolatry is. The exaltation of self and being letting yourself rule everything about you. That I will be king over all that I want, over all that I have, over all that I do. And we see that problem continue. And with Jeroboam, who ends up being, like I said, one of the kings in the divided kingdom soon after Solomon, we see Jeroboam sin. And his sin is syncretism, which is just a fancy word for the fusion of gods and religious practices together. So it's not a denial of the God of Israel. Syncretism and idolatry is not denying Israel. It is not denying Jesus as Lord. It's saying yes, to yes, but also something else. It's saying, yes, I'm a Jesus person, but also I follow this. And the sin of Jeroboam is seen in 1 Kings 12, 25-33. And there's a lot to draw from this section. Listen. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, again, I just, it's amazing how often this heart thing comes up, said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So again, you have him being king in one place, Rehoboam, king in another place. It will turn again to Rehoboam and they will kill me. And return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And I kind of whispered that. I guess just kind of show here. He's having this conversation in his, in his heart. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Sound familiar? And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Again, Aaron. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Kind of give them some options. Different spots to go. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests 
from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Goes on a little bit. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fiftieth on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So what is the sin of Jeroboam? Clearly idolatry, the idolatry of syncretism, but really look at his heart. Look at what's going on. What's bringing all this about? There's a selfish motivation in verse 27. Wait a second. My kingdom's going to go. They're going to go follow this other king. This selfish motivation, this fear. I'm afraid of something. I'm going to go manufacture my own idols. I'm going to lose power. I'm going to go after other idols. I've got to preserve myself. I might die. So I'm going to go chase something else. The repetition of the sin of Aaron. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. New priests, new temples. I'm the one who is going to decide how the worship of God will happen. Sure, we're worshiping the God of Israel, but I'm going to invent it. I'm going to change up the priesthood. I'm going to make a new temple. I'm going to make new spots to worship. Give them a bunch of different options. And what does it say? In the month that he had devised from his own heart. This all comes from his own heart. His own sin. It's not God shaping this. It's not God forming him. It's his own heart. Fashioning a God in his own image. So, our own images, our own words, the messages we listen to, shape us. And self is king. We see that in our culture. The fancy word individualistic expressivism. That we live in a culture that is highly individualistic. And it's all about not just you as the individual anymore, but how you express yourself. And whatever way you express yourself is completely okay. Whatever comes out of your own heart is good to go. I was thinking about a catechism question. You know the catechism, kind of a fancy language. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, in our culture, the chief end of man is to freely express yourself fluidly until you die. The goal, the chief end, the highest good is to just express yourself however you want. It can be fluid. It can change over time. Whatever you're feeling at the moment, whatever person you decide to marry, not marry, leave, not leave, um, image you want to be, whatever you want, you can continuously change that until you die. You are the one who sets your limits. You are the one who chooses what you want to be. Until death. And that is the happiness that you will achieve if you live in that way. That's the goal. If you think more corporately, not just individually, the chief end of society is to tolerate everyone else's freedom to express themselves. As long as you tolerate everybody else's individual freedom, the societal um, goal is that we've got to tolerate everything. But what does God say? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And that includes me. That includes self. God alone is the one who sets the limits, sets the boundaries, um, sets his design for us. And so when we follow Jeroboam, when we begin to be one just by our own heart, we begin to fall into idolatry. And the sin of Jeroboam, like I said, you're going to see it as you read. Again, we just started 1 Kings. But as you continue to read this over the next week or so, you're going to see that come up, that this king basically committed that sin over and over and over again. So you remember, wait, what was that sin? What did it look like? That's the passage that you can go to and find. Something else that we find is that sin grows exponentially. Sin grows exponentially. You ever notice how sin just creates more sin in your life? It's like a lie. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We find Manasseh later on. Manasseh is one of the sons of Hezekiah. This is again, this is going to be hundreds of years later after Jeroboam. And we see what he does in 2 Kings 21. He ends up being one of, according to Kings, Chronicles gives some different little pictures of him which are a little bit more about repentance. But Kings is really focused on showing the evil 
that Manasseh does. He's kind of like the, the um, Jeroboam's sin to the max. We find in 21 that Manasseh, this is 2 Kings 21, he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them and he built altars in the house of the Lord. That's 21, 3 and 4. So not only is it just altars and different things around that you can worship, he's bringing it into God's house. And now he is erecting the altars there. 21.4 And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So the sin of Israel gets worse than the nations that they were supposed to drive out originally. Remember in Leviticus, again in Joshua, various uh, abominations that God's saying they are to go. And God's people become even worse than the nations. So these little compromises, these little divisions of heart, more and more we see the fruition of it in Manasseh not just going to be several options. Now we're bringing it into God's house. Now we're actually taking our children and we're sacrificing them and our king, our leader, is doing it. We're consulting witchcraft, mediums, satanic. And God is angry. God is angry. In verse 10 and 11, the Lord said by His servants, the prophets... Because Manasseh, king of Judah, had committed these abominations and has done these things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hear of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. Sobering. More than the Ammonites, if you remember in Genesis, it talks about the sin of the Amorites, that it's not yet complete. And here we find that Israel themselves are sinning worse than the Amorites. So we see judgment on its way. And so we see how the sin of Jeroboam becomes the sin of Manasseh and the great penalties for it. But if you flip back to 1 Kings 13, this was right after the sin of Jeroboam, the prophets show up. And one thing that the lessons of Kings show us is that God is sovereign over history. And that his prophetic word, God's word, shapes history. This is why Kings continually has prophets interrupting things and speaking the word of God for rebuke or the word of God for promise. It's why Elijah and Elisha make up a ton of the book. So after Jeroboam does all this, we find all that he devised from his own heart. In chapter 13, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah. By the word of the Lord to Bethel, Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. So he's devising all these things, committing idolatry, prophet shows up. And says, something is coming. There's going to be a son born. His name's going to be Josiah. 
And he's going to sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. He doesn't like this. He doesn't like the rebuke. Stretches out his hand, comes out, and he doesn't work anymore. And so the man of God, God's prophet, God's word comes to this king and says something's going to happen. It doesn't happen in his lifetime. It doesn't happen in a lot of lifetimes. It's hundreds of years later. And this is how kings can be framed by the prophetic word. We see way when you go down all through these pages, what that prophet said happens. Josiah is born. 2 Kings 22.11, we see that Josiah ends up following the book of the law. The book of the law is lost. The book of law ends up being discovered. And that when the king, when Josiah hears the book of the law, what we've been reading the last several months, he tears his clothes. He humbles himself. Huldah, a prophetess, comes and prophesies. And says in 22.15, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they've forsaken me goes on, verse 18, But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. This is actually after Manasseh. Josiah humbles himself before the Word of God. And he goes and he makes all kinds of reforms. In 2 Kings 23, you see him just like smashing and just crushing idols all through the land. Is it these issues of removing, pulling down, crushing idolatry. The heart of the king that is won by God's word. And it fulfills what God already said hundreds of years before. We see that fulfillment in verse 15 of 23. Here he's at the altar, in the same altar that Jeroboam was at. 2 Kings 23:15. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. That altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mountain. He sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. And he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. Hundreds of years later, God's word fulfilled exactly. There's still a memory of it. Interesting when he's asking, wait, what's this monument? Here it is. God has spoken. The fulfillment takes place. God's word rules kings. And if it doesn't rule their hearts, it will rule them in judgment. But it will also rule in mercy. The other lesson that we get all throughout this book, is that mercy triumphs over judgment. We see the patience of God for hundreds of years. Again, this takes place over 400 years. And as you just read these stories and all the things that, that take place in a culture of idolatry, you're grieved and sometimes you wonder, why is God so patient? I was struck afresh by Ahab, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in 1 Kings 21, <laughs> Ahab... And Ahab is super annoying. Ahab is, is just a very annoying person as you read. And, and for some reason, this, this doesn't always happen. I'm just going to be honest. When I'm reading the Bible, things, things don't always just like kind of land, if you know what I mean. But reading, and I'm just going, what in the world 
God has mercy on Ahab after all that Ahab does. I mean, this is Ahab, Elijah, this is mountains, this is Baal, this is Jezebel, this is all that stuff. And God has mercy on him, and he doesn't actually see everything get destroyed. In 1 Kings 21, 17 to 29, God, out of grace, doesn't let him see it all. So if you have time, look at that. And I was just reminded of, you know, what the heck, the, the scandalous grace of God and mercy of God through these pages. Just a great reminder to us that God's mercy is scandalous. At times we go, God, what are you doing? Why are you blessing him in that way? That makes no sense. Which we see in Kings that people are complicated. God's not a God of karma. And we see that over and over again. We see righteous kings that nevertheless, that word comes up a lot, nevertheless have the high places. Even like righteous kings that, that, that even outshine the nevertheless kings really actually have neverthelesses. David, Bathsheba, Hezekiah shows all of his treasures to the Babylonians. Josiah, actually in Chronicles, we see that he ignores God's voice through, spoken through an Egyptian king. Actually, an Egyptian false king speaks the word of God and he ignores it and then he dies. So even the good kings, there are never the lesses. But God's promises are true and God is faithful. He will bring a king. And that's what he does. We recently, last week, celebrated Easter. And by the time you get to the end of Second Kings, you find a lot of death and destruction, ravaging of temple, everything. Basically just utter death, destruction. But we get a glimmer of hope. We get this really weird passage at the end of Second Kings when after Babylon captivity has happened, the king of Judah is there in Babylon, and it says, the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. End of Kings. It's kind of weird. Why, why is that there? You have this whisper, this glimmer of hope. The line of Judah is not finished. God will raise up a Davidic king. And instead of being released from captivity and invited to the table of an idolatrous king, we are kindly invited to eat of the table of a righteous king, the king who never fails, the king in the line of David, the, the king who, when Peter preaches and talks about David's throne and the line of David, that it's going to continue, and it's this Jesus whom you've crucified, that Jesus is alive, he's resurrected, he is king of the world. God's promises do not fail. We get to be invited. We, the ones who deserve judgment, we, the ones who have all kinds of neverthelesses in our lives, we do not have to go to the place of judgment. Jesus goes to the place of judgment for us. He takes our penalty, our sin. He delivers us from exile. He delivers us from death. He delivers us from judgment. And he says, eat, drink. This banquet that I have, I kindly give to you. So our hearts should be won by that king. The Lord Jesus, He loves you. He loves us. May our hearts be won afresh by His mercy. He is our King. May our hope be in Him. Not in leaders, not in self, not in kings, presidents, whatever it is. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. So let's take communion.
So again, the end of Second Kings, every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And that's what we do. That's what we do here. We dine regularly at this kind of a king's table. The king who sheds his blood for our sins, rises again for our justification. Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Kingdom. The king is coming again. Let's remember. Amen. Do I stand with us as we, we close? Oh